Hi, thanks for joining us tonight for another episode of Chapter Chat. We are just starting Chapter 1 of our new book, and it is Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Era. So my name is Carrie Ebert, and I am one of the co-hosts, and my good friend Mike. Let's see if he is here. There he is. Let's see here. And we will get this party started. Appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. There he is. Hello. How's it going? Good. How about yourself? I, I am so, so excited to be here. I already see a lot of familiar faces, familiar names. Yes. Uh, this is, I've been, I've literally been waiting for this all day long. I know. Isn't it fabulous? It just makes Mondays so, um, something to look forward to instead of something to dread, right? It really does. This is really, and, and just seeing all these familiar names and knowing that we're going to get such, such great engagement and yes. we're really, and this is the first chapter, unless we go with just a short intro. Uh, <laughs> you know, this book really, this book really doesn't pull any punches. It um, really, no. really doesn't. Yeah. It, it's kind of, um, fascinating to me how it builds off of the first two books that we've read in yeah. our new new online book club and some of Finland work... got a little shout out there oh yeah very yeah. good very good I love it it's just fascinating how you almost would think like that the authors knew each other you know because yes. they use some of the same terms and you're like wow I guess I didn't realize that this was really such an issue but every book we read kind of uses the same, um, I, they have the same story, you know, to tell. And so I find it very fascinating. I love what our friend uh, Callie said here from K Night Therapy. Uh, she's saying that Chapter Chat is her hope refuel for the week. <laughs> I love that. I love it. That's that great. is wonderful. Yes, yes. It is for us too, right, Mike? It, it definitely is. Definitely yeah. is. When, yeah. when, you, when you have those weekends where, you know, my weekends are filled with you know, baby time and some football and things like uh -huh. that. And now just, you know, Monday comes around and Monday is just that, that day where everything gets thrown at you. There's so much stuff and, uh, you know, you so can get, much. you can get so stressed out and so burnt out right when the week first, first starts. Absolutely. But knowing that, knowing that this is coming at 8 PM every week, uh, this is, uh, it, it's just so exciting. It's definitely it something I, I, I must've thought about tonight 15 different times throughout the day. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's nice to have this uh, professional community. I know we have some parents that join us as well. And just to be able to talk about education reform and be able to do it um, almost with a guide, if you will. You know, we have a book that we read one chapter per week. And like Mike said, this is our uh, chapter one of this yeah. new book. Last week, we talked a little bit about the introduction and, you know, it was, it was a great conversation. You know what I kind of want to do, Mike? So this chapter is called Our Education DNA. And um, I really, I, I can't even tell you how much the analogy on page 28, page 28, page 29, page 30, the analogy about riding a bicycle. Yes. And I just yes. feel like this is um, maybe a good place to start because if this is your first time joining us on Chapter Chat, uh, we have read two other books that uh, talked about education reform. And um, I, I just love this idea that um, when we look at education uh, in the United States and, and consider, you know, uh, how it is right now, it really hasn't, um, I guess, progressed 
with the mm -hmm. times, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they talk about this in this chapter. But I love this analogy that they say, imagine if we relied on our schools to teach kids how to ride bikes. Teachers would lecture and assign reading from bicycle textbooks. Students would stay up late at night memorizing the names of the various components of a bike. They would be marked down, uh, they would be marked down on tests and lose self-confidence for misspelling derailleur. I had to look that word up. It's a bike <laughs> gearing system. Yep. Some students would excel, others would struggle, but none would ever learn to ride a bike. And so they go on and on about this bicycle aptitude analogy, and they compare it to what our education system is like in the United States. And um, I, I, I love on page 31, it says, um, what happens, um, kids end up hating all aspects of riding a bike. Teachers dread coming to work, and our best will actually leave the profession. You know, there and you I go. just think this analogy is just um, so powerful. On page 32, I have it starred and highlighted because this is something as an early childhood provider I say all the time kids learn by doing. They don't learn by memorizing, they learn by doing right and and they even use mike your favorite word one of your favorite words here they persevere until uh -huh. they achieve competency and eventually mastery but that is all done by doing not by memorizing and regurgitating terms on on a test what did you think of that analogy mike this entire thing they really i remember reading this for the first time and they're they're doing this bicycle education comparison analogy mm -hmm. And it and it went on for a couple of pages. I was like, uh -huh. wow, they're I was like, wow, they're still going with this. Uh, <laughs> and it every single thing they said made perfect sense. And I underlined that exact sentence. Well, for starters, kids end up hating all aspects of riding a bike. Why? Because they don't practice riding the bike. They learn all the different aspects of riding a bike. They get anxious having to prepare for these bicycle aptitude tests, the bat tests, <laughs> yep. and it, it makes them anxious to the point where at, at the end of it, I don't even want to ride a bike. Right. I don't even want to do this. I don't care anymore. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're doing to kids by cramming all of this, uh, all of this uh, math and algebra and science and social studies and all of these things that we're cramming just so they get a good grade, increasing on a test, the, in, on a test increasing their anxiety to the point where they're done, where they're absolutely done with school. Well, they don't uh, love learning anymore, yeah, right? exactly. They're completely done. And this is exactly the way that they described this. You know, uh, they're basically saying, we assess all aspects of learning that have nothing to do with actually riding the bike. And, yep. this, and, and that's why this chapter, so this whole bike analogy really describes why this chapter is called Our Education DNA. And this is our DNA now. This is exactly what we have created, is this school system that really m makes kids anxious, makes them disinterested, and makes them not want to participate. Yep. And the thing that I just, I, I got to tell you, I just, I've been saying this for years. Um, uh, we, we now live in what I call the digital age, right? Since mm -hmm. about 2010, uh, that's when the iPad came out. We know how much technology has increased and how we have information available literally at our fingertips. We don't even have to use our fingertips because we can actually have voice commands and we can get information. If you want to know how many teeth a shark has, if you want to know how many people signed the Constitution, I don't care what knowledge you want to know. We have information literally available every second of every day to every single person. And so I love this term that they use in this chapter, that knowledge workers have become obsolete. So I want yes. you guys to think about that term, knowledge 
workers, okay? Because what we used to have to do, even when I was in school, I was born in 1971, and when I was in school, if I had to do um, a, a research paper, I actually had to go to a library. I actually had to use a card catalog. I mean, there was so much effort and time, and so I had to learn how to do the research. Now all you have to do is Google, right? You can find anything in the world you want, and all you have to do is, is Google it. And so because we live in the information era now, knowledge workers, who cares if you have knowledge? Who cares if you can rope memorize when every war started and when every war ended? How is that relevant to living and working and being successful in the innovation era? Yep. So, so one other thing besides the bike that I wanted to throw out there, uh, about the bike I wanted to throw out there, on page 32 on the, the, the paragraph that starts with, thankfully, we don't rely on schools to teach kids how to ride a bike. Kids learn by doing. They struggle, the they struggle to master the technique. They fail, uh, fall off to get back up. Executive functioning, varied experiences. Yep. They persevere until they achieve competency and eventually mastery. But here's the thing that really, really stood out to me. Oh, and if they take time away from their bikes, like for example, for five full months here in Boston during long cold winters, yep. they hop right back on that bike afterwards without missing a beat. Do you know what that reminded me of? What? One of the greatest Instagram posts of all time <laughs> by yours truly, it's okay to take a break from therapy. Yep. When, you when, when you posted that uh, in the beginning of summer about all that our kids have been through with COVID, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, social distancing, with virtual school, everything, and I can't tell you how many calls I get from parents because I focus on executive functioning is parents are worried about the summer slide um, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and two, three months of summer going by and kids losing literacy skills or math skills or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that post not only inspired me to do more community events this summer, but I also told all those parents who contact me specifically about the summer slide. I said, uh-uh, send your kid to a screen-free outdoors camp. Mm -hmm. I, do, I, I do not want that kid sitting in a clinic room with me. Find right. a camp. I sent, I sent them a list of camps that are screen-free, tech-free, phone-free. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and, and I, I, some of these parents I've been in touch with and I've spoken to, uh, and these kids greatly benefited from being out of their comfort zone, being out in the wilderness, uh, mm -hmm. you know, working with peers, being away from Varied screens, experiences. Varied right? experiences. And I'm sure they're back at school and their knowledge and what they were doing is exactly the same in September as it was in May and June. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so this whole idea of learning is more than rote memorization of facts, right? It's not about how much knowledge can we cram into your head and can you regurgitate out. That is what we are, what we talked about in the first two books in our book study and what this book is just picking up very nicely is that we have got to figure out how children succeed, who is most likely to succeed, and it is not necessarily those students who can um, uh, uh, score well. What was funny, Mike, is on page 29, they actually have a bike aptitude test yes. if you would like to take it, and it's like this multiple choice test. If the front gear of a bike has three levels and the rear has nine levels, how many, you know, it goes on and on. Uh, what yeah. component of or accessory for a bicycle is optimized to accommodate the needs of the isial tuberous cities? Like, I mean, that, what does any of that have to do with actually riding a bike? Absolutely nothing. No. Absolutely nothing. And I guarantee you there's people here that bike all the time, all the time, and have no idea what, what any of these questions are. Exactly. It yep. doesn't matter. In what year was the 
Campanola Bicycle Company formed. Okay, how does that, I mean, seriously, because if you want to know, wouldn't you just Google it? We do live in the information era. So if you really want to know when a bike company started, I'm not sure that's what we need to spend time in school teaching yep. children, right? Yep. And unfortunately, that is what we are doing. My son, who is autistic, um, they have been working on long division with him for years. And I just, I, I don't understand why they keep working on it. I'd much rather you teach him how to use a calculator or the calculator on his phone, because that's actually functional. Because if he mm -hmm. ever would have to do long division, which I can't think of a time when he probably would, but if he did, nope. I'm pretty sure he'd do what you and I would do, which is simply use our phone, right? So um, I, I just, I think that um, in this book, let me see if I can find it, Mike, where they talk about uh what was the term they used that we're stuck we're stuck in something they had a great term um like we're we haven't moved forward you t you say something really important mike and i'm going to try to find this quote <laughs> because it's fabulous okay so 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 another thing that this book touched on uh that our previous books have touched on is really the uh the uh the corporation and business aspect and polit uh, politics getting into education uh, mm -hmm. So once again, we hear no child left behind. Once yep, again, we hear, again. We, once again, we hear race to the top and how terrible it's been. And this uh, book once again points to the exact same points that finished lessons did. So yep. we have, uh, we have no child left behind. This legislation puts standardized tests of students into hyperdrive. Mm -hmm. And then, so we have no child left behind, which increased standardized testing. And then we have no we we have race to the top which held teachers accountable to scores which caused teachers to teach to the test and only focus on what's going to be on the test right. uh, and this and and the those two acts of politics are now part of our education uh, our educational dna and if you look on top of page 27 we have uh, while nearly 80% of fifth graders report being engaged at school that number drops to only 40% by the start of high school. Yep. 40% of students are engaged in school. And according to Brandon uh, Boosted, Executive Di Director of Education at Gallup, teachers are dead last yes. among all professions studied saying that their opinions count. That just blew my mind, Mike. I Terrible. have everything on that Terrible. page. It's page 27. If you actually have the book, yep. if you don't read anything else, just read page 27 because you'll go... Like, um, mind blown, okay? So, um, yeah, I love it. Teachers are dead last among all professions studied in saying their opinions count at work and that their supervisors create an open and trusting environment. What did we talk about in the last book we read, Finish Lessons? What is one of the, the cornerstones of Finnish education? is collaboration mm -hmm. um, between schools and between teachers, but also teacher autonomy. That those teachers are so well-educated and they are entrusted to uh, create and, and build a curriculum that is appropriate for the students in their class. And so uh, to say that, uh, that the Gallup found that teachers in this country um, uh, are dead last among all professions in feeling that their opinions matter. What yep. I mean, wow, I just and here's the chart contrast. and here's the chart from finished lessons on page 125. Okay. The black the black line is the United States for amount of time actually teaching in the classroom. Right. So number one, you think your opinions don't count. And number two, you're teaching for far more than all the other countries combined. Yeah, because the other countries are given time to collaborate. They actually write curriculum. They actually um, mm -hmm. spend time. Um, uh, uh, for lesson planning, it isn't just spent in, in front of the class. So it, it is a, a fascinating difference. 
Um, and, and continuing on page 27, Mike, it talks about pre-internet, right? So before um, this, this digital age that we live in now, we lived in a world of knowledge scarcity, right? Yep. I love that. Knowledge scarcity. So the best sources of information were schools and libraries. But now with this never-ending interconnectivity, knowledge has become a free commodity like air or water. Think available about that. On Think every, about that. I know. It That's crazy. my mind. Crazy. Available on every internet connected device. You no longer need um, a teacher or a librarian to provide you access to that information. So in the span of a decade, because remember, the iPad came out in 2010, and it's really been in the past 10 years, um, the role of content knowledge. What a great term. The role of mm -hmm. content knowledge has moved from the front to the back of the bus, okay? So now that information is readily available to everyone, content knowledge is no longer valued or even necessary in the workplace, okay? So now it's not. In this innovation era in which we live, it is not what you know, but it's what you can do with what you know. So here we are, Mike, once again, back at application, right? Not just rote memorization, but we are now at how can you apply it? How can you use that knowledge um, to be able to better, you know, this company or to develop new, new programs or new products? So when I first read that sentence, I remember it. So, so I'm reading it and it's basically saying that information is a free commodity like yep. air and water. The first time I read that in my head, I was just like, damn, that is, <laughs> that's crazy. Like just to think about that information and information <laughs> in the same category as air and water. That is, yeah. that is fascinating to think about. But is it, and, it's true, right? Mike? Yeah, that's, it, it's exactly true. It's hundred percent true. There are fifth graders, fourth graders that have a computer in their pocket that is mm -hmm. more powerful than the computer I had in college. Exactly. It's, it's as simple as that. And they and, and I'm so old, I didn't even have a computer. I had a word processor, Mike. When I was at the <laughs> University of Iowa in my undergrad program uh, for communication disorders and sciences, I had oh, this yeah. word processor. And when it was like a, a fancy typewriter, you know what I mean? But like you could actually like backspace and you could actually you had a little tiny screen so I could type like three sentences before it printed so that if there was an error I could fix it. I think about where we are today. I mean, I'm looking at my, my desk right now. I have three computer screens, you know, because I do a lot of writing. And so I'm always, I need, uh, I'm like, what, what, what in the world? No, I mean, kids today in college, what a different experience it must be, you know, to have to research and Look to write papers. More powerful than what went to the moon. Now, I'm, think, pr I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty yeah, sure I've heard that. That's, I think that's insane. And it's readily available to everywhere. Everyone. Everywhere. To everyone. Okay. And, so and ki kids grow up knowing how to use Microsoft Word because now it's yep. Google now it's Google Docs, yep. Google Sheets, Google Slides. Yep. Kids know how to do that by, you know, second, third grade naturally. Because they're so how yeah. to write PowerPoints. Let's say I've been a professional speaker eleven years. So eleven years ago I learned how to write a PowerPoint. Kids today make PowerPoints or Google Slides or whatever it is every All day. Like it's no, you know what I mean? And for yep. me, it was like this huge, like new life skill to learn yep. how to make a PowerPoint. I was doing a training at a school and uh -huh. the, the, the school brought me in because they wanted, they want to, they want to decrease. I, I'm pretty sure they probably heard some of these chapter chats, uh -huh. but uh, they wanted to decrease the use of Chromebooks and MacBooks in the classroom and increase. They were really big on written agendas, having an oh. old school agenda book. So I talked about, you know, why executive functioning is built using an agenda then versus uh -huh. something that provides the screens and the, sure. and the images for you. 
and they told me that, you know, back in the day, we used to write, write, write on notes, handwritten notes, fold them up and give them to our friends or give them to a girl, whatever, that sort of uh-huh, thing. Uh-huh. Now people just, now what kids do is they'll open a Google Doc and it, they'll share the Google Doc with their friends and they type the notes to each other. So kids are now doing Google Doc notes to chat with their friends in a quiet class. In a quiet class. Instead of folding a piece of paper and passing it. It's it's Google Docs now. That crazy. When I heard that, I was just like, oh my goodness. I just, I can't even. Okay, so I have to read you something else (laughs) from page 27, Mike, because this just continues, okay? Quite simply, the world has changed. And our schools remain stuck in time. This is what I was looking for. They remain stuck in time. Knowledge workers have become obsolete. What Mm. the world demands today, are you ready for this term? This is beautiful. Are smart creatives. That's the term that Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg used to describe the kind of people that Google needs to hire in their book, How Google Works. Wow. You know that Google is a really like forward thinking company and everything. So in our efforts to fix, and I love how they have it in parentheses, fix education, we've taken a course of action. Now, this is where I literally laughed out loud. These authors, I think I would like to have a glass of wine with them. I think they would oh, yeah. laugh out loud. Because Definitely. they said, are you ready for this sentence, you guys? Everybody listening, because this is classic. In our efforts to fix education, we've taken a course of action that extirpates. And I'm like, yep. why do these authors use such weird words? So I get out my phone and I look up extirpates. Yep. And the same thing. To destroy. But listen, then I go on to read the sentence and I'm like, these guys are genius. Okay. We've taken a course of action that extirpates the creative spirit and confidence from our youth while drilling them on frivolous things like memorizing the definition of extirpate (laughs) from the SAT verbal exam. So that word comes directly from the SAT. But isn't it funny that I question, why are they using this bizarre word? Like I hate when I don't understand the word. And even in the context, I'd never heard of the word. I couldn't figure the word out. And they go on to say, like this frivolous word that we're testing kids on to determine how much, you know, how much of an academic scholarship you should get to go to college or, you know, which college you should get into is, do you know the meaning of extirpate when we all have a phone um, with us? It's like a third appendage for most people today. Okay. That we could look it up. So why is memorizing vocabulary like an indicator of smartness and an indicator of who's going to succeed in the innovation era? And we're always teaching social skills and we're always teaching appropriate social interactions. What would happen to a teenager if they're using words like extirpate in a social conversation? They're instantly, yeah. they're instantly alienating themselves and, 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 and setting themselves up to be ribbed and poked on. And, and well, yeah, how up. weird do we want to make our kids? I mean, we exactly. Can, you know what I mean? We can teach you to use really strange. So, so my son is autistic. And when he was younger, he was very technical. He was very late to talk. But when he did talk, he watched um, his favorite show. I'm going to say when he was like seven, eight, nine years old, he loved Blue's Clues. And so he had nice. words. Like he would not, if you said, oh, that's green, he would say, no, that's actually chartreuse. Like he was very specific. Like if Mm. it's not purple or pink, it's magenta. Because, you know, in Blue's Clues, the different dogs were named different. Anyways, so he was always, but I'm like, we had to to teach him that, oh, buddy, you could just say light green or dark green. You don't have to say chartreuse. Because other kids would look at him like, you know, at the park, they'd be like, why, what, what what does that have to do with anything? You know, but, but he would say, I like your chartreuse shoes we're like we could just say green he's like but they're and we're like well i know they are 
but it's okay to say light green and dark green and just to say green. So now he's like, oh, okay, I don't have to be that specific. But for him, he thought that was like what you needed to do was use those really fancy vocabulary words. So I just thought how clever of these authors to throw that in there, right? Because I actually looked the word up before I even finished the sentence. The, the, their style of writing is, it, it's, it's almost like they're doing a chapter chat. It like, like they, the way that these two authors write together, it's, you know, there's a little bit of humor, but they don't, what I love about this book so far is they really don't pull any punches. They really describe very much in depth how messed up the system is. And just in, when they went in depth into the history of what created our education DNA, mm -hmm. and they were talking about cavemen and cave kids, and then right. they, get, they get all the way into how people were, how people were translating Bibles. Uh-huh. Like, uh, they and, were just note takers. The educated were just simply note takers. They were scribes, right? And so. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 No, all schools, somebody just said, I don't think all schools are the same. And somebody said, I think schools are doing a better job with building in, in creative creativity. I mean, certainly there are some schools that are doing yes. a, a better job. But when Correct. we look at the emphasis in this country on standardized testing and on what it takes to be able to get into college, and then we know that the United States has the highest dropout rate in college. So just because we um, have uh, uh, students who are straight A students doesn't necessarily mean they're going to succeed. But of course, there is, um, you know, there are going to be some schools. And, and when we think about the second book we read, Finish Lessons, that is what I would think we would aim for is that every school would be high quality, that we wouldn't have to have parents shopping around for a good school. We wish that every um, a, a neighborhood school was as high quality as the next one, right? But we know that that is, is certainly not the case in the United States. Oh, yeah. So, so there's definitely, I, I, I totally agree. There's a lot of schools out there. There's a great school in Philly here called the Science Leadership Academy that is 100% project-based. And I, I'll, I do my sessions with a senior in high school there and most of that session is me basically asking him questions about his school so I can learn more about the school. But, it, it, the, you know, one thing that this book touched on, on page 20, was we always talk about college dropout rates, uh, childhood anxiety because of how education is, all of that. On page 20, they mention teen suicide rates. And when I read that, yeah. I, was, I was like, whoa, I was not fully aware of this. So since 1950, college-aged suicides in the United States have doubled, while high school-aged suicides have tripled. That's okay. So yes, there are some schools out there that are doing the right thing, but there is a 100% correlation between our educational DNA and the increase in childhood anxiety. Those two things are, are there other things involved? Yes, like screens and social media and you know, uh, health overall, things like that. But the pressure that our education uh, creates because of its need for competition, because yep. of the need for standardized testing, teaching to the tests, uh, lack of play, lack of recess time, lack of yep. free time, lack of critical thinking time, like this book is clearly going to have a big theme of. Yep. These things are creating, we have created, our education DNA is 
anxiety. High really, anxiety. It's Starting high anxiety. in kindergarten. Starting in kindergarten. Yep. We've had, yep. I mean, I've told shared stories on here uh, previous weeks about, um, you know, kindergartners are so stressed. I told you that story about a kindergartner who came home and asked her mom if she could have a tutor. I mean, mm. you know, and we have kindergartners and first graders and second graders who have stomach aches and can't go to school. Terrible. And it's not that they're sick. It's that the anxiety, the stress is too much for them. So, Mike, on page 27, the very last sentence on this page, um, over and over in classroom after classroom, on assignment after assignment, we condition kids to look for the right answer instead of encouraging them to, instead of encouraging them to come up with multiple creative approaches. And to me, that is. Um, executive uh, functioning. That's that executive functioning. Executive. That's mental able, flexibility. Oh, yep. Mental, that's, uh, ex that's what it is. That's what it is. So, so executive functioning is the ability to do mental play and do what Sarah Ward calls a mental dress rehearsal. So the mm -hmm. ability to, to uh, experience the future, come up with a plan A, plan B, plan C, and be flexible so that when things come up in the future, you know how to respond. And so many of these kids today are, are becoming rigid with that fixed mindset yep. where they're saying, oh. I'm good at this. I'm bad at this. This is easy. This is hard. This right. is fun. This is boring. I'm All not of good that. at math, right? I, don't we know? I, I'm not I'm, good at math. I'm not a math right? guy. I'm a science I, guy. I don't, I don't write. I just do computers and numbers. I'm not, I can't write. I don't write. Okay. So my son is autistic and I will tell you, I mean, I had this vision yesterday. I'm like, Ooh, I want to like, just create a curriculum. I, I could do it on his special interest. My son's special interest is animals, wild animals. Yep. And I mean, I am telling you, we can get him to write. We can get him to draw. We can get him to, to do any, you can turn, you know, create um, math um, problems that in, involve animals. You can get him to do anything academic if you make it about his special interest. And I'm telling you, I think it'd be an amazing challenge to say, create, you know, um, some project-based learning based on the child's or the student's, you know, special interest. I know we could do it because we do it for our son all the time. We always have. We've homeschooled our son off and on over the years. He is now in public high school. Um, and um, I'm very happy with, you know, what's happening as far as he's, he's um, you know, like in a vocational um, exploration class, you know, learning about different jobs. What's so interesting is because my son is in special education, um, he focuses on, they talk a lot about life skills. And I think it's really fascinating on page some, oh, here it is, page 20, Mike. It says, um, when we ask parents what they want most for their children, they answer almost without exception, I just want my child to be happy. Yet yep. the way parents and schools work with kids is, in too many cases, completely counterproductive. We test our kids on criteria that have very little to do with life skills and tell most of them that they're not cutting it. We tell our kids that they will be abject failures without a high school diploma, but fail to provide them with relevant or engaging challenges during their four years in high school. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to think about the fact that we only focus on life skills with our students who are on IEPs. Like what happened to life skills? You know, this to me is, you know, and I think we could have a really philosophical conversation sometime. We might need wine to have it, but we could have a, a philosophical, <laughs> philosophical conversation. And I actually, gosh, maybe it's the next chapter is what's the purpose of education? Yes. Yeah, that is. Actually, yeah. That's where the second yep. chapter of this book is called The Purpose of Education. And I honestly can't wait to read it Cannot because wait. here in the United States, we've decided that the purpose of education is to teach to the test. That's, that's pretty exactly, much what we do. Exactly what it is, because now because of uh, race to the top, if teachers don't teach to the test, they're scared for their own jobs. Yeah, that's, right. th th that's exactly what it is. And when you have mm -hmm. teachers teaching out of fear, that fear is going to translate 
to the people they are around the most, which is the students. And Callie is spot on. It's all about money. It is all about money. When you look back at No Child Left Behind, it was a big thing between the politics and I think it was Pearson. Uh, uh -huh. It might, might be a different company, but it was all about the common core. And right. there was a certain corporation that made the most textbooks for the common core. And there you go. And that's exactly yep. what happened. So it's always about money. And on, on the top of page 28, I, I found this to be so interesting that they threw this in there. So when kids ask, will, we, will I ever use this? We respond, <laughs> we, we respond, trust me, this will come in handy down the road, except it won't. And they know it won't. And we know it won't. Mm -hmm. So how many people listening right now have ever had to tell that little white lie to a kid when they ask, when am I, when am I going to have to know information about the Civil War? When, mm -hmm. am, I, when am I ever going to need the quadratic formula? When mm -hmm. am I ever going to need to know the area of a triangle? And mm -hmm. we tell them, oh, that's, uh, that's, that'll come in handy later. And we mm -hmm. know deep down that it is an absolute- It very rarely does. Occasionally, never. there might be a math skill or, you know, when you're- If you become an engineer. Sure, and at that yeah. point, you're going to take lots of math. Yeah, and to <laughs> exactly. continue on with that chapter, um, Mike, it said, um, I love this, uh, and so kids treat school as a set of hoops to jump through instead of a vehicle for developing the skills and resources needed to accomplish their dreams. I contrast that with the Finnish lessons book that we just finished. How, remember, they had um, in, in Finland, uh, students, uh, there are no grades. You don't, you're not like in 10th grade, then 11th grade, then 12th grade. You're just mm -hmm. in upper secondary education. And so you can take your courses in any order that makes sense. So it allows for more flexibility. It allows for students, you know, to... Um, um, you know, take courses that are that are relevant to their interests at that time. Um, but uh, what was I going to, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, and they, remember how they said they had to have so many um, like credits in order to yes. graduate in, in yes. Finnish high school. And yet they said most Finnish students have like 15, 20, 25 more credits than necessary because they yep. actually enjoy learning so much because in Finland, it's more about the process of learning. It's yep. um, hands-on. Uh, remember, there's so many differences in Finnish education. First of all, for every 45 minutes you're in the classroom, you have to have 15 minutes of outdoor time. So, I mean, that right there is a huge difference um, in how we do it here in the States. Um, so I, I just, I, I, I think about how many students would say, yeah, I go to school because I have to. I go to school, it's jumping through hoops, right? I can't wait to graduate and be done with this, right? So, um, whereas, wouldn't it be amazing if we made education something that students loved and enjoyed? Um, because I will tell you this, and I think you would agree, Mike, now that I've found my passion in life, um, I love to learn. I mean, look yep. what we're doing our, in our yep. own free time. Nobody's paying us to do this. Uh, you know, finding my passion and my niche, if you will, has been huge for me. And I, I want every um, uh, human being to be able to find something that gives them their brain tingles, right? What mm. is it? We need mm. to figure out what gives every student, every child, every human being their brain tingles. And we need to figure, because we're all wired differently. There's no yep. way. The idea of a common core in and of itself is so bizarre to me because we're not all wired the same way, right? We don't all have the same interests, the same talents, the same passions. We don't have the same sensory processing systems. We're all going to be better at different things. So why wouldn't we want, oh, this one book, Mike, and I don't know, I'm not, uh, it's right here. This one, remember I told you about this, it's called Free to Learn. Oh, and yeah. my favorite statement by Peter Gray, my favorite statement in this book is when he says, 
look, people, um, of all of the things there are to learn in this world, when you think about all the things there are to learn, why in the world would you want every student to learn the same thing? Mm. And to me, that just blew my mm. mind. Like, wow. you, know, you really need to think about um, using what is relevant and meaningful. And, you know, what are your gifts and your talents and your passions? Because I'm telling you, passion is something that you can't teach, right? If you're passionate, you and I, Mike, what are we passionate about? We're passionate Hell about, yeah. oh my gosh, about speech pathology, about yep. executive function, about yep. child development, about, you know, this book club. Clearly we're passionate about this, but you couldn't keep us from doing this on Monday nights, right? And like I said, nobody's like dangling the carrot. Nobody's like, hey, Mike, if you do this, I'll send you, I'll Venmo you $50. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. Know. I mean, yeah. there's no, you know, like, yeah. ooh, if you do that, nobody's like trying to reinforce us. This is because we're doing this because we think A, it's important, and B, we enjoy it so very much, right? A absolutely. So, like, so uh, my journey here was I was originally going to become a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. I loved just, I, it was always a dream of me to be a teacher. I always looked up to my teachers growing up and all of that. And somewhere along the line, I was introduced to uh, speech and language pathology. So I worked at this children's center where uh, kids had a lot of, you know, uh, behavioral issues and violence and other things. So they lived on campus and the school was on campus. And I was able to sit in on their uh, speech therapy sessions. And I was able to see firsthand how speech and language therapy improved quality of life, period. Uh -huh. It was uh -huh. literally a therapy that improved someone's quality of life. And I was probably gonna be like a history teacher or a social studies teacher. And yeah, that's fun and all. And you can, yeah. you can inspire your students, but I'm not working on quality of life. And uh -huh. now being a speech and language pathologist, there's, there's two things that get me up every morning and make me love this field more than anything. So number one is that every single child is different, period, period. Every single child. I don't care if it's autism, if it's apraxia, if it's ADHD, you are never going to meet two kids that are the same or even maybe like a quarter the same. Uh -huh. every, I've worked with siblings, I've worked with twins. They're all so different and you have to yep. approach them differently. And number two is the learning never stops. Never. Ever. ever. Uh -uh. So speech and language communication is literally what makes the world go around. It's literally yes. what makes everything possible. And the whole aspect of neuroplasticity, the oh. whole aspect of executive functioning, we're literally still learning about executive functioning. There's still mm -hmm. new research happening. And if you look at what the old research said, like, why ADHD is called ADHD with the hyperactivity, the inattentiveness, the attention deficit. It's not an attention deficit. It's an abundance of attention. It's too much attention, and, right? And, and it's not hyperactivity. It's self-regulation. So yep. like, and we're constantly learning and I'm constantly having to, to read and learn. And it, it's, it's amazing. So, it, and, and being here, uh, being here in this field and every single day being challenged every single day having to learn, every single day being able to work with people, it's, it's the best thing in the world. But, and, and, and that's exactly how teachers should feel because I know that the teachers in Finland definitely feel that way. They do. And, and um, oh, see, I had a thought. No, I, don't know. <laughs> I hate when I do that. I when like, I'm my right. Really no, I don't know. I don't know. But yes, I agree with you so much. Oh, no, I know what I was going to say, Mike, is, we, we, I think we talked about this maybe last week, if not the week before, but that when you consider 
every course in school. I don't care if it's science, if it's math, if it's, you know, history, economics. I don't care what the subject is. Literacy, right? Speech and language, communication skills are the foundation of every Everything. learning opportunity, Everything. right? It, every learning opportunity. And so I think that that is why as a speech language pathologist, I too am so passionate about it because you can't remove communication from any type of learning. You can't do it, right? Yep. Um, one of, as a, an early intervention provider, you know, and I know I probably say this every week and those of you who join us, you're probably sick of hearing me say this, but language plus experience equals learning. Okay, that is my favorite, mm. like, way to explain the, the limitations of screen-based learning. There's language there, but there's no experience, exactly. right? So if we really want to focus on education, if we really want students to learn, then we need to think about the fact that we need language plus varied experiences, and that equals learning. So there's a little math equation for you. How so about this? Can... Language plus experience equals growth. Equals uh, maturing. That's exactly what it is. Langu Absolutely. Without language and without novel experiences, mm -hmm. there's no growth. Think about it. And isn't that like, what learning is, though? Learning, another, if we had to come learning, growth for learning, yep. growth is a beautiful. And that's what I love yep. about your, your company name. Is it your company yeah. name? Yeah, Pro yeah, yeah, therapy? yeah. I mean, yep. I love that so much. I'm like, I just, I just love that. <laughs> because when I think of the term, you know, when you have a visual, because... I'm learning a lot about the importance of visual imagery and all this. That's so when right. I, whenever I, and you know, I message Mike probably, I would say daily, or I'm, I'm always tagging him in something. So I see grow now, at grow now therapy, at grow now. I mean, I see it all the time. And every time I do in my head, there's a vision of a tree because I think of growth, nice. of growing. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is just what I, you know, I, and I just, I've never really thought about it till just this moment, but I'm telling you, I always have a visual associated with your company because of, yeah. of that word grow. I think it's just a beautiful term. And, and we talked about it earlier. Uh, what do adults want for their kids? For them to live happy, successful lives. That's what the, the uh -huh. authors wrote about earlier. But really, uh -huh. we, we want our kids to grow. You know, the, the best way to say it, uh. we, we want our kids to grow. We want them to attain skills so that when us, you know, uh, and they talk about Bible in here. And there's, there's one Bible verse that always sticks out to me is, uh -huh. you know, you're twice a child, once an adult. Yes, twice a child, once an adult. So like when you so when you are old enough, you need to be cared for again. You're again. basically you're yep. basically like a child again. Life is a circle. Life it? is a yep. circle, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so when that happens, all parents want their kids to be successful when they are no longer here, when they cannot can no longer mm -hmm. provide for them. And that mm -hmm. requires language plus experience equals yep. growth. So yeah. th that's the reason we have first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. You know, but by the time a kid is in fourth grade, third grade needs to be a little bit too easy for them and too uh -huh. immature for them because right. they're ready for new things and new experiences and new things happening. And that requires language and experience. Language and experience equals learning and language and experience equals maturing growth. Yeah. growth. Maturing that's exactly, growth. exactly what it is. It's, it's just really profound, you know, yeah. it really is. And, and that whole adage um, that you never stop learning. And you think about, um, you know, a, a young child, let's, let's take the population I, I um, specialize in, you take very young children, I always tell parents, your child is a sponge, right? Yep. Literally yep. a sponge, they are soaking up um, the world. So it's really here's another here's another great analogy for a child with a developing brain and body. Think about wet cement. 
Okay, so now you have a visual in your head of wet cement, okay? So you think about the power of the environment, of the experiences, okay? Because you think about brain growth and development. Um, it's kind of like if you drop it into wet cement, whatever is around it, that's going to form that brain. So it's experiences, but it's also important for us to think about lack of experiences, right? Yes. Because those two things together um, shape uh, brain development in the in the early early years, and so that is why it is um, just so important that we are uh, in this digital age that we have screen time mindfulness. That is something you and I talk about quite frequently on this on time. this podcast is or on this these episodes of Chapter Chat is that we need to um, we live in the digital age. Nobody's going to say get rid of the screens. That's not even realistic uh, living yep. in the digital age. But we need to make sure that children have balance that adults, that we all have balance, that we all have plenty of outdoor time. We need vitamin D. We need our eyes and our bodies need a break um, for all this screen time, right? We need movement. Uh, specifically, when we talk about what's important for young children, they need play-based movement, right? So how many non-screen opportunities has your child had today? How much play-based mm. movement has your child had today? Those are two really important questions to ask when a child is dysregulated, when they're discombobulated, when they're not able to focus, they're not able to attend. They're not able to listen to a story in circle time. We have to step back and say, okay, well, let's think about, you know, is this child even, is their nervous system even regulated at this point? Because if you spend a lot of time um, in front of the screen, I'm, uh, you know, a professional, I'm a writer, I'm a professional speaker. So I'm always writing and creating handouts and writing. I mean, that's what I do. I sit in front of the screen a lot when I'm not out presenting. And I will tell you, there are times where I just think I'm gonna lose my mind. Like I just have to, and I work from home. So I'm like, I just have to go out in the back. Yep. I'm going to go yep. run the puppies. I'm going to go, you know, I don't know, but I, do you ever just feel like that where you're like, All I just can't imagine being a student, being a young child and sitting for six hours in front of a Chromebook and being expected to be regulated and learn and, um, you know, enjoy school. So. And it, there's a, there's a, a correlation every time. And that's why I added that portion to my intake page for new parents that come that come to grow now therapies. How many non-screen experiences does your child have on a daily basis? Yep. Because without a doubt, every single time is you know the students that have a massive missing assignment list from school, behavioral issues at school, uh, a lack of social relationships. They're really introverted. Uh, they're really on their own. Lack of being able to keep up with life skills and hygiene. And parents' first thought, because they go to their pediatrician for advice on next steps, is, oh, throw them in a social skills group. Uh -huh. You can put them in a social skills group for an hour, two hours a week, but that's not going to stop them from going home and being on their iPad and being on video games all the time and, right. not, and not having language plus experience for growth. So right. they're probably going to sit in that social skills group. They might have a couple of connections. They might have a couple of good experiences. But to truly see the brain form those neural connections, build those synapses where you see carryover into the natural environment right. to, the to the point where your kid is home and says, you know what? And says to themselves with their self-talk, you know what? Instead of screens today, instead of the game I spent six hours playing yesterday, you know what? I'm going to go outside and I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to go find, yeah. some, find some friends in the neighborhood. You're not really going to see that correlation. So there has to be the parent coaching aspect that we're doing yes. that I know you do such a great job of. But there has to be uh, the parent coaching. We have to spread the information out there. And it's super important for us to teach, kid, teach parents the difference between preferred tasks and non-preferred tasks. There has to be a healthy balance. Because even at schools now, every classroom is filled with technology. 
and yep. kids kids aren't writing they're not reading actual paper books anymore you know mm -hmm. they're they're looking up articles and reading articles online it is super important for kids to get out there and varied experiences are crucial and you have parents spending thousands and thousands of dollars you know for social skills groups for these crazy evaluations all of these things but really all you have to do is look at what has this child been exposed to sure. so there's an there's an exposure therapy aspect to speech and language therapy so mm -hmm. like exposure therapy is a big thing in the psychology field and the psychiatric field and part of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, and anxiety therapies let's expose the child to the things that make them anxious and build up a, a, a toughness to it or a resiliency mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. But there's part of that within speech and language therapy is we're exposing these kids to challenge or exposing them to various social relationships. Mm -hmm. And we're exposing them to their ability to work things out internally and not be so reliant, so reliant on the adults around them to, to provide the prompts and those sorts mm -hmm. of things. You bet. So yep. this is interesting, Mike. Someone said in the big cities, a lot of kids live in apartments and they can't just go outside and play without supervision and that those kids are at a disadvantage. You know, when I think about, um, you know, how, how do we move forward? I think one of the things that is going to be really important is to have these discussions because I'm telling you culturally, life in Lee Summit, Missouri, where I live, is significantly different from life in LA or yeah. life in New York City. So we do have to consider culturally, even where I live, I live in a suburb of Kansas City, but life here is much different than if you go into the inner city in Kansas City, where it isn't safe to even go out and play in the backyard, where you know maybe there aren't um, even parks where it's safe for kids to go. So what do we do, right? What we have to be able to do is say, okay, well, I mean, if you can't go outside and, and play, can we have varied experiences within the home? You know, Correct. it's letting kids, I don't know, I mean, let them play in the sink, you know, turn the water on and put some bubbles in and give them some plastic dishes. That's a varied experience for a toddler, right, for a two, three-year-old, as opposed to letting them watch another episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, right? So do we have to get creative? Yeah, we do, right? And do we need supports out there? for um, uh, our kids who don't have, you know, we need to make sure that there are parks that are safe. And, and you know, yes. so, I mean, this is a yes. huge issue. And I understand, you know, Mike and I are not trying to suggest that, oh, this is just flip a switch and we can make everything better if people would just go outside. That's not what we're saying. But I just think it's important that we, we don't give up on outdoor play, that we don't give up on childhood experiences just because we live in the digital age and just because screen time is easier. I think we would all agree putting a kid in front of a screen is far and away easier than having to get out Play-Doh or having to, you know, go find some sidewalk chalk or having to blow bubbles with them. I mean, yeah, if we want to talk about what's easiest, yes, screen time is easiest. Yep. But we, we, especially in this day and age where we have more and more children who are dysregulated, more and more kids who have executive dysfunction, more and more kids who can't sit still in school. So we've got a huge issue. We've got kids who aren't going to school ready to learn and we've got schools who have an education system that is antiquated, that is outdated, that is not relevant for this innovation era in which we live. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to come at it from both ends, right? Yep. So we talk about the importance of varied experiences. And right alongside that is the relationships piece and interpersonal relationships. So our, our listener made a great point here. It, kids in inner cities don't really have a safe space for those experiences. And also a lot of kids within those inner cities, 
a lot of their parents need to work two, three, four jobs to make ends meet, really decreasing their chances for a positive relationship. And we learned uh, a lot about that from our first book, How Children Succeed, where he did a lot of work and interviews and met, people's and met, met people in inner cities. So he went to a lot of privileged private schools and he went to a lot of schools in Chicago and in the inner okay. cities. But it, just like you said, it is, it is our responsibility to make sure that play comes back to schools, period. So those inner cities, like a, a lot of the inner cities, a lot of them do have universal pre-K or you know, places for daycares and kindergarten, things like that. It is super important to bring play back to early childhood. So everything that we're talking about here, with every single book we've read and every single piece of reform we talk about. So every week we talk about this has to change, this has to change, this has, has to change. The number one thing, period, play has to come back to early childhood. End of story, period. That can happen in inner cities, that can happen in the suburbs, that can happen in the private schools, everything. We need play in kindergarten. Hell, we need play in first grade, <laughs> second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Research, recess time needs to be tripled, quadrupled in elementary <laughs> school, period. Absolutely. You know, I got to tell you, I, I don't remember if it was on here or if someone DM'd me after one of our, our chapter chats, but she said, I work in, um, in childcare, right? I work at a daycare center. And I think it was probably after one of my posts about the importance of play. And she said, I work in the 18 month to 24 month old classroom. So these are one and a half to two year olds. And she said, we have um, a curriculum in the, in that classroom. And there really isn't much play. Like we have to focus on like letters and shapes and colors and we have for one and a half year olds and she's like I really want to talk to my director about trying to get more play in our classroom and I'm like I mean I just don't really have words for this I just I don't I don't I don't mm. I don't get it I don't mm. understand why would we would be trying to teach children um the, the other thing I and I, excuse me if I've talked about this in the past but I think about these I ponder these like these issues sometimes. and I'm like preschool let's think about, about that word for a minute pre means before yep before yep. school so why is preschool why does it look like elementary school now why are kids sitting around kidney-shaped tables with a worksheets and number two pencils in their hands see that doesn't yep. make any sense to me preschool is supposed to be about play-based learning okay and, and it's not supposed to be uh, academic focused and yet we have kids two-year-olds, right, who are in academic-focused classrooms. Why do we even call them classrooms? I mean, yep. now, you know, it costs so much to send your child to daycare that they call them preschool. And, oh, yeah, my 15-month-old goes to preschool. And you're like, he goes to preschool. Well, I mean, he's there all day. It's basically daycare, but it's preschool. You know, they work on academic stuff, too. So I guess they want to call it preschool because it makes it sound like it's worth more money. I, I, I don't understand. I don't know where we're going, but I just will tell you this. We're going the wrong direction. I had a parent call me, I think, three or four weeks ago. So their, I think, I think four-year-old child uh, just got evaluated by early intervention, was denied services because they, didn't, uh, they, didn't, they weren't qualified for services, and they were seeking a private service to teach this four-year-old how to read and write. So that was the, the number one concern. So Grow Now Therapy, can you provide services to my four-year-old to teach them how to read and write? Because I can't get the free services through the state to do that for me. Uh, and I, I basically had to say, that's not something that's not appropriate. Well, it's, it's not, not developmentally it's appropriate. Not developmentally right, appropriate. Right. This is not something, and I, I had to let, the, let her know, 
this is not really what you should be focusing on. This mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. is unbelievably not important. And I'm and I, and I believe this was a you know a high performing parent might have been a doctor working at University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. whatever whatever mm-hmm. it may be. But it's it's I had to explain to them this is absolutely number one the brain is not ready and number right. two you are going to really dysregulate this child mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. teaching them these things their brain is simply not ready for and now, they, are some they kids have, yeah go ahead are some kids early readers do some kids pick up on it on their own i mean sure. yeah that that, sure. that that's very true that there are and if they're showing readiness and you want to you know i mean you can read to, i mean i the, the point is it shouldn't be um uh, force fed you know as yes. though it was part of um a good good early childhood um, pedagogy, right? Because we know that it is not. Somebody asked, Mike, I just saw it scroll by. So are you suggesting we don't send kids to preschool? That's, I mean, we're oh, not suggesting no, no, that. No, 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 they no. need that experience. What we're suggesting is find a preschool that isn't academic focused. I mean- Find a preschool should, that's 100% play-based, Yeah, period. it's play. You know, if you, if you live in California, I mean, I'm just telling you, there's this great thing called loose parts. And loose parts is a, a, a philosophy in early childhood where you just give kids loose parts. It could be pine cones and sticks and rocks and and you let them create and imagine and explore and discover and that's the kind of things that kids need is they need opportunities to think not opportunities to rote memorize okay so we can put kids in front of preschool on tv right that happens all the time put kids in front of educational programming we call preschool on tv and kids can rote memorize letters numbers shapes and colors and everybody says oh see he's so smart he's Mm. ready for school so as we read in our first book in this book club we're focusing on the wrong set of skills we shouldn't be trying to make kids smart we should be teaching kids how to think and there is a big difference there I remember in uh, SLP grad school getting my master's I remember for the first time hearing a teacher say a, a child can know the ABC song, but still not know their letters. And it took Absolutely, me a second. Absolutely, because. Yeah, it took me a second to grasp that. And I was like, wait a second, that makes a true. lot of sense. Well, do you know how many kids think LMNOP is one letter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They literally, because of the song, LMNOP, right? Yep. And, and so then YNZ. I think it's YNZ. 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 Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it is. There are so many kids. How about this? Here's another skill. Oh, he can count to 50. Great. But can he hand you three crackers? Because (laughs) one to one correspondence counting is an actual um, numeracy skill. Mm. Being able to rote count has nothing to do with math whatsoever. So, again, do we want to force feed these rote skills so that we can say kids are smart or do we want to teach kids how to think? Right. And I think and that's what does, where. And, and what does all this rote memorization do to, ch- to kids working memories? Like the working memory of the brain, which is the foundation of all executive functioning, all executive functioning, time management, organization, task initiation, everything. All of it starts with working memory and nonverbal working memory. And it's basically the way to describe it is it's almost like a RAM of a computer. And if you're shoving so much information in there to memorize, 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 the computer crashes like a, like a student, like a student who's on stimulant meds. And at the end of the, (laughs) at at the, at the end of the day, they crash Crash. and and they can't, and they can't do anything. That's what all this rote memorization is doing to these kids. That's it. Like you ever crammed for a test? It's information overload, right? Yeah. Like, like all of us have crammed for a test. You take Mm -hmm. the test and then after you're done with the test, that's it. You're done for the day. You can't go to the yep. gym. You can't be around people. Right. You got to just sit there and let your brain fry on the television. That's right. That's right. I love this. Somebody said when my brother was four, they called it play school. 
Mike, isn't that perfect? Play it should school. be called I'm, running, I'm writing that down. I'm running that down. Oh, like my genius. If I could, genius. if I could do an emoji, it'd be the mind blown right now. Play school. Genius. It shouldn't be preschool. It should be play school. And I she said that. when she went to kindergarten, which was in the 1960s, it was play based. I went to kindergarten in Des Moines, Iowa in 1976. It was half day. We still had to have a rest time. We had to have a little mat. We couldn't even go a whole three hours without taking a little rest. It was a hundred percent play based. Uh, kindergarten is the original early childhood, right? Uh, if I were going to uh, reorganize education, kindergarten would be in the early childhood realm. It would not be part of elementary school, right? So um, it's just fascinating to think about how fast we have moved and how rapidly grade inflation has set in in this country. Because in 1976, kindergarten was exactly what it was supposed to be. It was optional. It was primarily focused on building social skills necessary to be in a classroom setting because there was no preschool when I was a kid, okay? You went to kindergarten and that was your original, uh, you know, first experience in a classroom environment. And now we're doing the second grade curriculum in kindergarten. We're doing the first grade curriculum in the yep. four-year-old preschool. We're doing the kindergarten curriculum with three-year-olds we're doing the four-year-old pre-K curriculum with two-year-olds in daycare. And that means two-year-olds are doing things like circle time, calendar time, right? Um, the letter of the week, number of the week, two-year-olds. I am telling you right now, none of this is developmentally appropriate. So I, that, th this whole concept of play school, oh my goodness, that is the, I am so happy that this, our listener, M. Peacock, Peacock Shell said that. Uh, that is uh, shout out to you for making my day. Yes. That is, yes. that, that's, that's, that's amazing. That is like, why are we, why are we calling it preschool and why is it not called play school period? Why is that not ingrained in people's brains? Oh, my yeah. son, my son or daughter is going to play school next year. That is, oh. that's, that's just, that, that's, we need that to is, bring back play school. That, right? that just made my day period. Me play too. School, it makes call me it, smile. Call it play school so that it's just boom. It's interesting. Done. So here we have another one from our good friend here. Ugh. It's so interesting to me how young kids lose their naps. And I think it's because they aren't getting this, the stimulation in play that their bodies really need. We used to oh, 100%. Yeah. And then yeah. that trickles into the later years where kids are, are uh, they're not getting the play. They're asked to lecture, listen, listen to the lectures and sitting, sitting, sitting. Why have we seen such an increase in anxiety? Number one, it's anxiety. And anxiety is either internal, where kids are getting stomach aches, or it's external, where kids can't sit still. So right. kids are sitting, 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 sitting. Kindergarten, preschool, first grade, second grade, sitting, listening, oh, taking two notes. two-year-olds are expected to sit still for a 15-minute circle time. The body the was not like, made to do that. Sit still, hands to yourself, um, crisscross applesauce, sit on your bottoms, keep your hands to yourself, sit still, sit still, yep. sit still. What are we doing? These are little tiny human beings with developing nervous systems. Why in the world would you think they're going to sit still? And here's what I learned from an occupational therapist. Are you ready for this? This is really going to blow your mind. Is the most advanced form of movement is the ability to sit still. Oh, God. Now think about that, okay? We are expecting very young children to sit still, and yet it requires so much to be able to do that. The Terrible. only way children learn to sit still is to allow them to climb the walls, to move, to run, to jump. They have to be able to do that before they can learn to sit still. So here we are once again in our educational system putting the cart before the horse. That's, that's, that's insane. And, and we have we, all of the data is there in terms of college dropouts, uh, suicide rates, uh, ADHD diagnosis rates, sensory dysregulation. Oh. It's insane. 
It's, it, it's asking young kids to sit still. The human body was not made to sit still, nope. period. Nope. And it's nope. causing so many issues. And it's it mostly, it's, and it's we're really causing- And behavioral. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right? These, and, and, and a lot of these kids are being force-fed meds when all they, all they really need is It's some play-based movement. Yeah, there you go. Play-based movement. So I'll say two things. First of all, and then we'll, we'll try to wrap this up. But this is my favorite book of all times, A Moving Child is a Learning Child. If you work in early childhood, if you have young children, I'm telling you this is a phenomenal book that explains why movement is so critical for brain development. Okay? So I love that the cover. other thing. Uh, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, the other thing I want to say is uh, one thing that I've learned through all my research, because I have an autistic son who has a lot of uh, sensory issues, and just in general, it's really hard to work as a speech-language pathologist with kids who are dysregulated. It's hard to work on high-level speech-language executive function skills when you have a child who is dysregulated. And so um, one of the things that I learned is that we need to really think about what fidgeting is. So you're sitting here, and the longer you sit, I'm assuming the more you fidget, the more you, like, you need to rearrange in your seat. You know, maybe you've got a pen and you're twirling it. Maybe you're chewing gum. You think about all the things you and I as adults do to stay regulated, right? Well, here's what fidgeting is. If you're sitting there with a young child and the young child starts to fidget, fidgeting is the brain's way of communicating, the body's way of communicating with the brain that, hey, if you want me, no, 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 it's the brain's way of communicating with the body. If you want me to continue to focus, this is the brain talking, Uh if you want me to continue to focus, you're going to have to give me a little movement here because Mm. I can no longer attend. So what I'm going to do as the brain is I'm going to tell your body, okay, move a little bit, hit somebody, smack them in the head, bounce up and down in your chair, spin. I don't know what you're going to have to do, but there's no way you can continue to focus and attend and concentrate unless you give my brain, the brain, what it needs. And right now what it needs is movement. So if we could only interpret fidgeting for what it actually is, it is a request for movement. It is a request for regulation instead of Ooh. getting on them and saying, Ooh. stop it, sit still, be quiet, crisscross applesauce, keep your hands to yourself. See, this is a problem with our, our, um, our, the adults not understanding what fidgeting is, not understanding the behavior itself. A request for regulation. Yep. That, that's what that's, fidgeting is. Th- th- there you go. There you go. A request for regulation. Sounds not like a, it should be a social media post. What do you not think, a, Not a request for <laughs> not a request for an IEP. Not a request for a massive evaluation to be done right. that take that takes right. ton, that pulls a kid pulls a kid out right. of class, pulls a kid uh-huh. out of a recess to do an evaluation. Not a request for a five hundred four so the right. kid can sit closer to the teacher right. or get extended time on yep. tests, but a request for regulation. Think about that and yeah. how much of this would be improved if kids learned how to self-regulate because we allowed them to play in play school. Yep. Oh, you guys, this was fabulous. Thank you guys so much for all of your comments. You guys were outstanding tonight. Unbelievable. I hope that, yeah, I hope that you found this interesting. I know Mike and I, uh, we are like giddy. I don't know about you, Mike. I have a tough time sleeping on Monday nights because I think we I, get all done and I'm all like riled up. <laughs> I think that free to learn book might have to be our might have to be our next book. Yeah, it'll rock your world a little yeah, bit. I mean, I, yeah. I've read it and I have shared it with a couple of my friends. In fact, I had to buy a second copy because you know when you share it, you never know where it is up they shared it with somebody it is a little over the top but i am telling you i sometimes need to hear the the out there you know what i mean like Uh sometimes you need to because you don't have to agree with everything right but it is just a fascinating 
approach to, to learning. And in this chapter, we didn't talk about it a lot, but they went all the way back to cavemen. And when, what was the purpose of education in the cavemen? It was to be able to pass on the skills so the next generation could survive. I mean, isn't that really what this is about exactly what we're trying to do survival right so you guys are awesome next week we're going to cover chapter two of our book which is most likely to succeed and chapter two is called the purpose of education and mike i cannot wait cannot i i gotta say this chapter chat community you guys mean so much to me you guys are absolutely amazing every single person who shoots me a message or uh, writes to me that they listened on the podcast uh, and, and they, they just listened on their walk. They listened to a, uh, an episode while they were at the gym or walking their dog or whatever. It, it's, it's so great. And you guys reading along with us and the comments tonight were absolutely amazing. You yeah, guys, I want to answer, Mike, I want to answer one comment because yep. I hate to leave this person hanging. She said, are you guys against occupational therapy because it's adult-led? Oh, um, no, no. no, no, no. Therapy is great. I am a huge believer in child-led therapy, though. So you're going to find a lot of OT therapists. Yeah, the different therapists have different approaches. So um, it is one thing that Mike and I have talked about in the past. I'm sure it'll come up again is we do at some point need kids to willingly engage in non-preferred activities. Correct. So that is where an adult directed activity would come in. But especially for very young children, I, I'm a, a, a huge believer in child led so that it's relevant and meaningful to them and we can build off of those skills. But now occupational therapy is extremely important for kids who, who need it. And um, they are certainly OTs or our colleagues right Mike so I mean yeah we we absolutely absolutely, um I'm not a huge proponent of intensive or excessive therapy um but that's that's a topic for a different day so anyways um as long as it's functional as long as the goals uh support pie as long as our therapy goals increase the child's participation independence and or engagement that's pie and as long as our therapy goals increase pie then everything we're doing is functional so uh yep. that's that's my takeaway that's what i'm going to leave you with tonight is pie because that is something that i've been talking about for years and years and it's always been very important uh for for my son's programming as well I just want to make yep. sure what we're working on is functional that we're not just teaching to the test and someone just wrote here, my son's <clears throat> therapy preschool is child-led floor model. Yeah, so that's, that's, prob- that's probably yep. Stanley Greenspan yep. floor time. Stanley Greenspan floor time. And hey, yep. I, I love yep. it. Amazing model. And it, it, it brings back relationships and experiences. Yeah. Relationship-based so, hey. learning, right? If you, if you want a term that you want to be able to share when you go to work or, you know, talk to somebody at the water cooler tomorrow, relationship-based learning is really what – um, it's all about, right? Uh, yep. That's how we can um, uh, really connect with children. Something that I say in so many of my social media posts, connection over instruction, right? That's really my emphasis um, is focusing on, on that connection. And one thing for all you therapists, we, we have a big community here of, like, we have parents, we have great professionals out there, but we have a lot of SLPs out there as well. And one thing for you guys to take away from tonight is next time you're with your student, and you see them sort of uh, acting out or being introverted or not following through on your therapy plan, think for a second, what is their request for regulation? Just start to reframe the way we think about our interactions with our students and try to think about, is this child requesting regulation in their own unique child-led way? So that's a really, I I love that phrase, a request for regulation. Absolutely. Something for us all to think about. So, Mike, again, thank you for another hour 
and 10 minutes of stimulating conversation. It makes me uh, uh, so happy. So we'll see you next week for, um, hey, Mike, just so you know, next Monday, I will actually be live from Cheyenne, Wyoming. I am going on a seven-day speaking tour. Um, this will be my first in-person speaking um, engagement since March 5th of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, when I last spoke in Fresno, California, had no idea that um, that would be it. Had no idea this pandemic was coming, but it has been here. So I'm getting back on the road again. So I will join you Monday night from Cheyenne, Wyoming. And you're keeping the commitment to the chapter chat. Oh, Look at I that. Am. Hitting I the am. road hitting the road, training people, and keeping the commitment. Round That's of applause. Right. Round of applause for Carrie, everybody. Love, love it. it. Love, love it. it. All right, you guys. Have a wonderful week. And Mike and I will see you next Monday. Thank you guys Bye. so much.